Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So glad you are here. The episode you are about to listen to will tug at your heartstrings, no doubt, but may be difficult to listen to. Please, please, listener discretion is advised. The episode definitely contains adult themes and is not suitable for younger ears. So before we begin, a couple of people contacted me last week with the same question. Michelle on Facebook Messenger, through the Most Notorious page, and Devin, who sent me an email, and both had the same question, um, which related to last week's Elvin Carpus episode. They wanted to know what I thought about Ma Barker being found with weapons on her. Did I think they were planted on her? Was she really a killer? Well, I think the history, of course, is gray. Ma Barker grew up poor in the Ozarks. She had a rough life. Her sons all turned out bad. Far from mother of the year, right? But there were never any reports ever of any eyewitnesses seeing a woman involved in any of the Barker Carpus gang's holdups. She never went with. If she had, she would have been a liability. A woman, a bit heavy set in her late 50s, early 60s, running with a weapon through a bank would not only have slowed the younger men down, but she would have stuck out like a sore thumb to boot. But that must have meant that she was the brains behind the gang instead, right? That's what uh, Hoover called her, a criminal mastermind. Pretty difficult to imagine, though, um, especially with Carpus in the mix. There are multiple accounts from men who ran with the gang who all came to the same conclusion. Uh, Mob was about as far from a mastermind as, as a person could get. She, in fact, was gullible, superstitious, and simple, according to Carpus. She sat at home and listened to hillbilly music to pass the time while the rest were out committing the crimes. Bank robber Harvey Bailey said that she couldn't plan breakfast 
let alone a bank heist. That's not to say that she didn't know what was going on. She certainly did. But as far as being involved in the planning or the performing of these robberies, absolutely not. So on to the final shootout, where she was found, as uh, Ms. Thompson last week had said, according to agents, with a 45 and a Thompson submachine gun near her body. I mean, I'm guessing she knew how to shoot. I mean, from her younger days, late 19th century, growing up in rural Missouri, I'm sure a lot of young men and women knew how to shoot in that place and time. And imagine being surrounded by federal agents. Your son Fred does not want to be taken alive. It's just you and him. She could very well have gone into maternal mode or self-preservation mode at the very least and picked up a gun and fired out the window at agents. That doesn't seem like a great leap of the imagination to think that she'd do that out of sheer desperation. I mean, like a cornered animal fighting back. I mean, especially with a pistol. But a Thompson submachine gun at 63 years old, it's kind of hard to believe. I mean, there are tales of fit young men losing control (laughs) of a Tommy gun. It's hard to aim. It has a tendency to move up when firing. So to have her ably wielding this weapon, especially with a bulky 100-round drum attached, even if she was able to hoist it up and hold it, the recoil would have been really difficult to manage. Aiming would have been impossible. I mean, I've I've fired a Tommy gun once before, uh, many years ago, and it was a trip, but it was really hard to control. So how did she have that next to her body? Maybe Fred Barker had dropped it (laughs) near where she had landed. Um, Maybe federal agents did plant that gun on her. And that's not something that federal agents, I'm sure, normally do. but, But remember, Hoover was desperate to control his image and the image of the Bureau. And we are aware very fully now of his cunning and his vindictiveness 80 years later. So again, I wouldn't be surprised if she had taken a few shots out of the window at the people that were trying to kill them. But a Thompson submachine gun, this image of Ma Barker, Shelley Winters and Bloody Mama with a Thompson submachine gun, I think that's highly unlikely personally. And by the way, if you want to learn more about the Barker Carpus Gang's activities in St. Paul, download the Tim Mahoney episode on the gang on my Minnesota's Most Notorious Where Blood Runs Cold podcast. You won't be sorry. It's highly entertaining. All right, on to the episode. It is with great pleasure that I introduce my guest, Pamela Everett. She is an attorney, professor, former journalist, and author of Little Shoes, the sensational Depression-era murders that became my family's secret. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So most authors who come on this show develop a deep connection to their subject matter. Not surprising, given the years of research often involved in writing a book. But yours is even deeper than that. You have a very personal relationship with this story, don't you? Yes. Yeah, the deepest um, learning about two aunts that I never even knew I had uh, when I was just 15 years old, but not being able to uh, learn more about it at the time because my dad just couldn't talk about it. It became deeply personal at that moment, whether I went on to research it or not. And then through the research process, I learned so much about 
these two little girls and actually three little girls. They, they were both murdered along with one of their playmates and just watching the story unfold in newspapers and other documents that I found and seeing my grandparents in pictures and uh, my other aunts and uncles, it just was unbelievably moving and, uh, and deeply disturbing to know that they just kept all of this, you know, a secret for, for so long. So yeah, it's, it's family and an incredible criminal case, but um, at the very heart of it, it's just family, family that I rediscovered. And that's been a great gift. When did you first learn that your aunts had been the victims of these horrible murders? Well, as I write about in the prologue, my dad made a really cryptic comment when I was 15 years old. He had caught me in a lie and I'd been out where I, somewhere where I said I was and I wasn't. And, and he found me and typical teenager misbehavior. And, and he just, uh, overreacted and told me, you can never make me search for you the way I did tonight and you can't lie to me. And through that exchange, which I write about in the book, he just said, I lost two sisters and I can't lose a daughter. And I only knew of one aunt and I tried to press it a little bit to understand what he was talking about. And he said, they found their bodies and they found the little shoes lined up next to the bodies. And that was it. That was absolutely it. And uh, that was when I was 15 years old. And and he, I knew I couldn't pursue it with him any further. And so he died 10 years later. And that was when I felt like I might, I, I never forgot it, obviously, that kind of comment, you don't. And I, about 10 years later, he died. And I thought, well, maybe now I can start turning over some rocks and see what I can find. So it's been a very, very long process. <laughs> from those teenage years um, through, through now. Absolutely. So this happened in a place called Inglewood in California. What was it like in Inglewood in the 1930s, and what brought your family there in the first place? Well, it was a bedroom community of Los Angeles as it is today. And in those days, it was really an oasis of sorts. It was close enough to the big city, but a suburb that people felt safe in, uh, Sentinella Park, which was kind of the centerpiece of it, of the community was just beautiful with a pool and baseball diamonds and all the rest. And, you know, these were the really tough depression years and thousands of people were flowing into California. And as I understand it from the people I interviewed and just from just the general research. Inglewood was, you know, close enough to LA that it provided some opportunity, but also um, far, far enough removed that it also attracted a lot of stragglers and just sort of shifty characters who were trying to work for the WPA, which was the Work Progress uh, Administration. You know, lots of, not lots, but some jobs, and, and it just attracted a really unique population. So right there on the fringe of the big city and yet this tiny community, it was in a lot of ways a, a breeding ground for perpetrators who were looking for children. And that 
I make that clear in the book. This this was not an isolated incident. It was in its intensity and in its outcome, but there had been a lot of incidents in Inglewood involving children with just men who were unemployed and hanging around and, um, you know, something today that just seems so foreign to us, but uh, kids unattended in parks and walking to school and walking home. Um, so, you know, that's what I know of it. And and today it's it's similar, again, very close to Los Angeles. It's a rougher, much rougher neighborhood now. Um, but that's the picture I got from the 1937 era that I uh, was researching. And to put things into perspective for our listeners, we did an episode on Marion Parker, the mm-hmm. little girl who was murdered 10 years earlier in 1927 in L.A. And a few years after this one, the Black Dahlia murder happened. The Marion Parker murder became somewhat instrumental in the investigation of my family's case. There were uh, some similarities in that, not similarities, but there was concern, again, any time a child murder was on the radar screen, they they reached back and tried to look at all of those issues. And yes, then the Black Dahlia became really the crime of the century after my family's incident. So can you talk about your family, your aunts, uncles, grandparents, dad? What was life like for them leading up to the moment that this happened? Sure. And I realize I didn't answer your question about how they got there. They were living in Maine and uh, had six children, three girls and three boys. My dad was the oldest. And they were dealing with a depression back there as well, obviously. And my grandmother's brother was with the LAPD, uh, the Los Angeles Police Department. And I'm sure that was the connection to the West Coast. My grandfather gave an interview with the LA Times after the crimes, and he described why they came out here. And he said, we just wanted our kids to grow up in a place where they could play outside, where they didn't have to deal with the terrible heat of the summers in the east or the terrible winters. And, and, but I, and, and he didn't talk about this um, brother-in-law, but I'm sure that was the connection. Uh, and whatever the case, they, they crossed the continent to uh, find work and to find a better life. My grandmother came out first on a bus, of all things. Um, I, knowing her, I, I can see that now, but she never talked about any of it. And she came out first and stayed with the brother-in-law, her brother, and got a little bit settled. I believe she got a job doing bookkeeping. And then my grandfather brought the six kids out and also on a bus, as I understand it. And they were able to buy a house right on Sentinel Park. And I've I've been there today. It's it's all still there, but it was a really unique kind of trisection where three streets came together and led right into the park. And they were they were right across. So it was perfect. It was exactly what my grandfather had described, a place that was idyllic and beautiful and close. The kids could just walk over and, and play and, and enjoy California. And my grandfather was able to find work. He worked at Northrop and um, the other large aviation company. It escapes me now, but uh, they, I, I believe from everything, by all accounts, I was able to find they were prosperous and they were happy. 
and then tragedy struck just a year or so after they moved. Whenever there is an episode involving children, I, I feel myself getting tongue-tied. It's difficult for me to approach these subjects that are so especially disturbing, and obviously this is so intensely personal to you. I mean, any murder is disturbing, but when it involves children, I mean, my God, I mean, you can't even measure the grimness, the sadness, the horror of it all. So your two aunts, sisters, um, Melba, Marie, and Madeline Everett, they were nine and seven, and they spent the morning in Centinelia Park with their neighbor playmate, Jeanette Stevens, who was eight. What do we know about that day? What was their morning like? What were they doing? Why were they there? What I learned about that day is that it was beautiful, for one thing, and school had just gotten out a couple weeks earlier, and all the kids from the local neighborhoods had been spending all their days in the park, and particularly my two aunts and Jeanette. Uh, there would be park employees who would talk to investigators later and say, those kids were always here. They never went home. We had to run them out of here. Uh, it seemed to be the norm for so many children. And as I said earlier, when I started researching what was going on at that park, there were a lot of parents in the wake of, of my aunt's death who said, we've had these guys sort of trolling around for a long time. So I think that element was there, but from the children's perspective, it was an oasis and it was uh, just where they wanted to be every day. My aunt, my older aunt, who was supposed to be with the girls that day, but was at home doing chores and her life was spared. She didn't talk a lot about it either, but she did say that they went there every day and they had their tree and their special spot. And so I think it was just a typical summer day as, as you know new as that summer was it was a typical day for them uh, a woman i was able to connect with was seven years old at the time and she went to the park that morning as well and she saw my aunts and jeanette Stevens. she didn't know them from school or anything but but she saw them remembered them and remembered exactly where they were because, of course, later when the news broke that they were missing, her parents said, oh, my gosh, you know, you were there. that day. Did you see them? And she didn't have much information other than just that she played with them for a little while. But she said they were joyous and all the kids were. It was just a wonderful place to be. Um, but, again, everyone I talked to is all, uh, confirmed that all of these kids were unattended because it's just a different time. And parents don't need to be there. And uh, so that's what I know about that morning. I think just a typical Saturday morning in beautiful Southern California. Actually, there were a lot of people who had seen them, right? It was a crowded park. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And they, they would eventually leave their play area and go to talk to a swimming pool attendant and they asked her, well, one of them did, asked for a rope, uh, that there was a man who was showing them rope tricks and that he needed some extra rope and, and they were so excited. And, you know, we hear this 
or you read it today and think, what on earth? You know, how did someone not wonder what was happening? But that is a testament to the time it was and and the innocence of that time. And uh, sure enough, the swimming pool attendant found some rope and gave it to the little girl that was uh, Jeanette, I believe, who had gone and asked. And anyway, they uh, went back to the to the spot under the tree and the man was doing rope tricks and everyone, everyone saw him. Everyone saw them. Everyone saw the man. And uh, then, you know, after the tragedy, accounts start to get a little different as they usually do. But by all accounts, there was a man who was engaged with all three girls and was doing rope tricks and otherwise entertaining them. And the description was for the most part the same. There were sketches made of him, which which people can see in your book. He had a thin face, dark hair, and a mustache, right? Yes. And those accounts are fairly consistent across uh, time. You know, As with most criminal investigations, there were people who were interviewed very shortly after the girls went missing. Those recollections are probably a little more accurate, but what we know today about eyewitness identifications was still true then. There's no reason, especially on a typical Saturday morning, for people to be paying any particular attention. And uh, so many men sort of fit this description, again, because of the influx of people from other areas, a guy just hanging around. Um, But yeah, yeah, wearing dungarees and some tattoos and a mustache, yeah. And someone reports seeing one of the girls very gleefully telling them that someone was going to take them somewhere to hunt rabbits, right? Right. Actually, all three were skipping and backing up a little bit. They, my aunt Marie, went again to the swimming pool attendant, who I guess was sort of the hub of, you know, the the park. And she gave that person the blanket and a few other things that they had brought to the park with him that day and said, could you please hang on to these? We're going to go uh, rabbit hunting. We're, we're, we're leaving. And, and that person didn't remember so much about that moment. But another woman who was coming into the park to start her work shift saw all three of the girls skipping merrily out towards the main road outside Sentinella Park. And it struck her because she knew the girls. She saw them in the park every day. She knew their names. She said, where are you guys going? And they said, oh, we're going to go rabbit hunting, rabbit hunting. And they were just so excited. And again, in hindsight, you know, with detectives asking this woman about the exchange, she was horrified that she didn't think more about it. But there was no reason to think anything of it at the time. And that was the last time that anyone in the park saw them. They left out one of the main uh, exits out onto a major street and were were never seen again. So how long does it take for your grandparents to start becoming concerned? My surviving aunt uh, said that they were a little concerned when it started to get close to the time of their favorite radio program. And the way she described that was around 6.30 or 7. And I really couldn't uh, be any more specific. I couldn't find any more specifics about that. 
but you know it's late june it's staying late pretty or light pretty late i would imagine and uh, but they were concerned because these girls never missed their radio show. And that was when they started communicating with the Stevens family, who were, lived just a couple doors down. Hey, where's Jeanette? Where are the girls? And as I write, I, the worry sort of morphed into panic, I think, in a, in a slow motion fashion. Because today we would all immediately react to a missing child with the absolute worst possible fears but then it could have been anything and so you know the the Stevens parents talked to my grandparents oh no they're not there and then unbelievably again in hindsight they send two of their kids my my surviving aunt my older aunt and one of the Stevens son who was the you know the brother of Jeanette Stevens they send them over to the park and to see if they're still over at the park and they didn't turn up anything. And I also write about how my grandfather called the police station, and I'm not exactly sure what time that was. There were no records of it. But by all accounts, he had called, and they said, typical protocol at the time, we have to wait 24 hours. Kids run away. They do crazy things. We're not going to run after every kid who's not home for dinner. And he waited a little while, as did the Stevens' parents, and then he and the Stevens' mother went down to the station and said, these aren't, these aren't little boys. These aren't adventurous little boys. These are three very small little girls, and something's up. And fortunately, there was a precinct captain who, who you know, got that and talked to, the ca- talked to the police chief by phone, and then the, the search began. So this put the neighborhood into a panic really quickly. How did word spread that they were missing and how many people helped look for them? Well, and I write about quite a bit of the detail because this was unprecedented in California law enforcement history. Typically, a local police department would just handle things on their own and there wasn't a lot of cooperation between agencies. But when the chief heard that there were three girls and um, he ordered every available officer into the station that night to start searching, and when they didn't find anything within an hour or two, he knew something was seriously wrong. And for one of the first times, uh, there was a, a reach out to other beach community agencies, Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach, and if you know the Los Angeles area, just that whole Santa Monica, whole general area, um, the the calls went out, and the concern being that maybe they've already been transported to a neighboring community, and so all of those agencies had their officers out on the street, and then the accounts from the LA Times put it at about 500 that uh, by the next morning, and then more than that even by the next day. As for how people in the community started to hear about it, that was so interesting. There was a woman I was able to interview, the woman, again, who was in the park that morning. She remembered that night that her parents became very nervous and all of the parents were talking. And I write about the just the scene that she described to me and you can just feel it, you know, the the mothers exchanging information. Well, what have you heard? Three little girls, are they really gone? And were they at the park? 
and, uh, you know, the men of the community starting to get really concerned. And then a lot of the men volunteered to be in the search parties. And um, the community came together, but it was primarily a major, major law enforcement push. The, the next day, when they hadn't found anything, they brought in uh, Civil Air Patrol planes and uh, mounted mounted posses, I guess you call them, but, you know, law enforcement officers on horseback because a lot of the terrain around Inglewood, unlike today, it, it was not very developed. It was rugged hills, uh, oil derricks, and there was just concern that they needed to comb those areas, and it was very difficult country. So it was a big push fairly quickly, and uh, I credit that, and I do so in the book, to that uh, that police chief who just knew that something was terribly wrong. There are many law enforcement agencies involved, but it ends up being a small group of Boy Scouts who stumble onto the ravine where the girls are lying. Can you describe that scene? Yeah, they, can you imagine? I mean, they were, they were young and they're, teen, they're young teens and they had sent out multiple Boy Scout troops just to help. And in particular with that rugged area, never thinking, but uh, these boys described to the police chief and other investigators that they got up on top of a ravine, a very steep ravine. And they just, one of them commented, this would be a great place to hide. Probably thinking about the perpetrator, maybe not thinking about bodies, but they slid down into this very deep ravine and immediately saw one of the girls and then uh, quickly saw the, the, the two others and horrible, uh, just night nightmarish scene. And they had the presence of mind somehow to leave a couple of them at the scene, uh, up on top of the ravine, not down with the girls. They couldn't handle that. but uh, And then to send uh, two or three of them, I think it was, back into town. And they ran all the way back to the main road. And the first car they saw, they flagged it down and found the police chief. And, and that was how the the horror really began to unfold. The Boy Scouts are featured in several newspaper articles in the LA Times and some other sources. And their faces are just, they're just so young and so dumbstruck by what's happened, you know, and people were hailing them as heroes. And I, I just, they, they had all died by the time I started my research and I was, you know, disappointed. I didn't get to talk with any of them, but I, I can't imagine it must've stayed with them their entire lives. Yeah. So your book is called Little Shoes, which has to do with the girls' shoes, which were lined up in a neat little row near one of the bodies. Mm-hmm. The bodies were, uh, they had some space between them, 50 feet, 70 feet, but the shoes were sort of in a central location around the middle body and just so macabre and strange. Uh, they were, you know, put together very nicely. Each pair, two were facing one way, the other pair was facing another way. And it became 
a big part of the story. People were horrified enough, but the idea that whoever did this took the time to be so careful with these shoes and to preserve them this way. And again, when my dad made that cryptic comment that night when I was 15, that was one of the first things he said. You know, you know that the, they found their little shoes lined up next to the body. And I never forgot that. I just never, I, I had no idea what he was referring to or how horrible it could be. But then when I dug into it and realized it was a, you know, what we would call today with serial killers, it was a calling card. And investigators were haunted by it and focused on it. Who could have possibly have taken the time to do this? And so that's where the name of the book came from. And and just that idea, it, it so encompasses the innocence and and just the, the just this Haley's comet like quality of this whole tragedy. Right. So what was the the physical evidence found at the scene of the crime? Well, uh, the bodies had been sexually assaulted in just about every way imaginable. The girls had been mutilated, sexually mutilated, and they had all been strangled using very small ligatures, uh, ropes, and ropes that matched very much the description of the ropes that the swimming pool attendant gave to one of the girls to take to the man who was doing the rope tricks. Whatever the case, they had been pulled very, very tightly um, within, you know, a couple inches circle that was just a few inches around. And that was it. There wasn't a lot of blood other than from the sexual assault. Um, so there, you know, there was no other stabbing or anything like that. Um, just the girls' bodies, and they were removed. And and beyond that, all investigators had were the shoes and the girls' clothing. There was a, a Mickey Mouse book that Madeline was seen with at the park that she had apparently taken with her up there, and a thermos of milk. Other than that, uh, there wasn't anything. Wasn't there a, a bag of candy found under one of the girls? There was a candy bag, uh, not not full of candy, but there was this bag found under one of the bodies, my Aunt uh, Marie. And that became a focus for investigators because it was a bag that a local pharmacy said they they had run out of their regular candy bags and they were, they were using these bags for candy. So they could tie it to this particular store and they had been using several of these. So they knew that whoever it was had probably been in that store and had bought candy, presumably to lure the girls uh, to come with him. That never really panned out too much as I write about when they interviewed uh, a woman who was on duty at the time or at the alleged time. It never really amounted to much, but it was something that investigators definitely picked up. So this case becomes known in the press as the Three Babes of Inglewood murders, the name that will become synonymous with this case. Once the papers grab hold of this, the city erupts. 
it becomes incredibly sensational. Papers are competing for stories. Obviously, the police are highly motivated to get this solved. What happens in, in those initial chaotic days? How did police wade through their investigation under these conditions? What I found most interesting about that aspect of it is they knew immediately it was some sort of sexual perpetrator. And so using techniques that we would use today in the click of a button with a database, they knew to reach out to every law enforcement community in agency in California to say, here's the condition of the body. It involves ligatures, rabbit hunting, you know, whatever, every piece of information. Bring us every person you've ever arrested who's who's ever had any sort of offense that might match something here. And they were profiling. And um, I, I found that so amazing, just all of the effort that came to bear to just zero in on guys in a file. And that's what they did. They started bringing in suspects and they may have had really little connection to Inglewood or, you know, even guys with alibis, they would bring them in and they just questioned people one after the other. Some of the photographs I found from the archives, they did it in the district attorney's office because there was a a very angry mob brewing outside of the police station in Inglewood. And they were concerned that if they got anybody who appeared to be a viable suspect, that this mob would, would rip them apart. So they did most of their questioning at the district attorney's office. And there's pictures of them with some of these suspects. And they have small ligatures, just like what they found around the girl's necks. They have those on the table and, you know, you just know they're just trying to pressure these guys like, you know, is this what you did? And and um, they brought in a ton of people. Most most of them led nowhere. But there were a few they were serious enough about. They would drive them out to the scene of the ravine to see if they could get them to crack. And, uh, you know, other tactics like that. There was um, one man I write about and he was actually arrested, but later on they were able to clear him and he was released. So it it was full on. And for those, for that time, it was really unprecedented. Again, I mean, this cooperation and just knowing that they needed to find a certain offender and bring them in and go from there. And that's what they did. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Hi. I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, Join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. So two suspects rise to the top, and one of those people was a man by the name of Fred Godsey. Would you talk about him, what his background was, and the evidence that led investigators to believe he might be involved? Fred Godsey was this really unique guy in that he had a sister in Inglewood, so he didn't live there, but he would visit there occasionally. And he happened to be in Inglewood at the time. And he'd been in prison. He had a criminal record. Friends described him as being one of the most cruel men they'd ever met. He allegedly bit off a man's ear in a bar fight years earlier. And at the same time, he was also described as an incredibly skilled sewing machine repairman. He did a lot of other odd jobs. He apparently played the violin. And he had a, um, a Ford, a, a Ford Roadster, which became suspicious, or at least it was on law enforcement officers' radar screen, 
when some people around the park said they'd seen this Ford Roadster with an open box on the back with three girls in it that morning. And one of the people who claimed to have seen that was an L.A. sheriff's deputy who lived across the street from the park where my grandparents did. So that had some credibility. And all of that started to come together that maybe this guy was in the park. He had sort of a similar look with the mustache and the hair. You know, all all of the pieces started to fit together. Then there was another group of men who said they bought a goat from him that morning. And the rope holding the goat in the back of the the Ford Roadster was very similar to what they found around the girls' necks, things like that. He was he was definitely a strong suspect because of all of those features. And he disappeared pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm. They couldn't find him, but they weren't they weren't sure if that was just because he didn't live there and he was headed back to where he was going. But they couldn't find him in four quite some time he was quite the person of interest and so they were looking for him and then other events transpired and that trail went cold but he did resemble the description that witnesses gave of the man in the park who was talking to the girls absolutely and more importantly in my mind anyway is later when they found their ultimate suspect Many people in the community came forward and said, no, it was Fred Godsey. They'd seen a picture of Fred Godsey, and they said that was him, um, including children who were close by and some adults as well. And so he not only fit the general description, but there were people who claimed to be eyewitnesses and to have seen him there with the girls in the park. One of the clues had to do with one of the girls telling someone that they were talking to a man named Eddie the Sailor. And as you explain in your book, Fred Godsey went by the nickname Freddie the Sailor. Mm-hmm. And the Freddie the Sailor disclosure to me is just one of those moments. I always think if the book is a movie, this is going to be one of those moments where the story is national news. And Fred Gotze's wife talks with investigators in Los Angeles and says, you know, he could play the violin, he could do rope tricks, he could throw his wrists out of joint, which children love to see, and he could do it like nobody else. He was very cruel to me. He was a drinker. She went on and on. And then there's just this pause where she thinks the interview is over and she says, And his friends all called him Freddy the Sailor. And I imagine for investigators that had to have been just one of those chilling moments where, you know, but for one letter, this this could very well be the guy. And so, yeah, lots of connections to to eyewitness identifications and the facts we know from the, the scene. So Fred Godsey, a very viable suspect, up and left. And they started focusing on a crossing guard named Elbert Dyer next. What was it about Dyer that intrigued police enough to decide to question him further? The short answer is Dyer himself. They questioned him because he was on duty in the park that day. He was a crossing guard during the school year. And then when the school year ended, they put the crossing guards in the park. 
and he was on duty like other people and they definitely talked to him as a matter of course. He had an alibi. He was at home with his wife working on the garden. They let him go, found nothing. And then Dyer shows up at the police headquarters on a Friday evening and says, I heard you were looking for me. And I really couldn't find the genesis for that. But now that I know what I know about Dyer, you can just sort of imagine that he want, he wants to be a part of it. He he wants to somehow be at the epicenter of what's going on. He's disappointed that he can't be, and so maybe this is a way to do it. But for whatever the case, investigators obviously said, who's that guy? What What is he doing here? We've already talked to him. And that reignited their interest in him. At the beginning, there was definitely some interest because he was a crossing guard at the girls' school. You know, he knew them. It sounds like there's some plausibility there, but then it it just goes away. Then he shows up again and they think, wait a minute, you know, now now we're going to look again. And they do, and they pursue him. And, um, you know, that's really the rest of the story. He becomes the prime suspect and they're ultimately able to get him to confess. And he's such an interesting character, Albert Dyer, so susceptible to manipulation from the police and a man with some pretty serious mental limitations as well. Right. And what we know today through exoneration work, and I'm a volunteer attorney with the California Innocence Project, so I've been looking at these cases for 11 years. I teach an entire class on this topic, and false confessions are a, a big piece of it. And here you have a suspect. It's classic. He has the IQ of a nine-year-old boy, and he doesn't understand really anything. They gave him, after he confessed, they gave him batteries of tests, psychological tests, and those results were available in the newspaper and also in some other documents I found. And they're classic. They are the classic evidence of someone who has such a limited capacity for understanding intelligence, anything. And those are the people who are so at risk for uh, police interrogation practices. And in those days, of course, they're not, they're not recorded. They're not videotaped. And Dyer has no right to have counsel present. Uh, Miranda wouldn't be decided for another 30 years. So they don't even have to read him his rights. They just see they've got a live fish on the line. He, sort of fits the the picture. He's a little bit suspicious because he showed up at the station and they start working on him and they work on him in ways that police have been working on suspects for decades. They drive him near the scene. They talk to him, take him back to the station, you know, let him know that this big mob that's outside the Inglewood jail is going to, is going to rip apart anybody who may have done this. You might as well just tell us now so we don't have to take you back there. And, and of course, of course, he confesses. And again, I, I was all, I looked through all of this through just the, um, just the normal lens of someone just wanting to learn what happened to their family and to learn about this killer of, of my aunt. And then at some point, my, my innocence project lawyer hat went on and I thought, wait a minute, all the hallmarks are here. And when you read his confession, it's not so much a confession as it is just uh, a yes and no to the police narrative, which is another classic thing we we see in false confessions today. 
almost all of them. The police tell the story and you've got a willing suspect who just says yes, no, yes, no, whatever I have to do to get out of this interrogation room. And I'm I'm very convinced that's what happened to Dyer. How did they build a case around him? I mean, a confession is a pretty big thing in the 1930s. <laughs> it goes a long way. But they almost had to manipulate eyewitness accounts to satisfy the narrative that they were pushing. And they didn't even do that. The confession was so strong that they didn't need to do much more. And he confessed nine times and recanted six. And the story kept changing, but all they continued to put out there is that he just keeps confessing. Every time we meet with him, he confesses again. Um, We would only learn later, you know, again, through my review of all of the confessions, how how inaccurate they all were. But the eyewitnesses, and, and you said it exactly right, the eyewitness identifications start to just fit. You know, he's, he's, he's this, he looks like this, he's, he's got kind of a mustache. But the reality is, is that, you know, again, so many people came forward after Dyer was identified as having confessed, saying, no, it wasn't him. And these were people and children who knew Dyer because they saw him in the park all the time. And they said, no, it absolutely wasn't him. But investigators really ignored that. They had their man and a man who had confessed. And in those days, and, and even today, to some extent, that's golden. And and with the pressure they had to have felt to catch someone, to say, we've got a guy who is the crossing guard at this girl's school. He knows them. And he's told us he did it. There's not much more you have to do to build the case. And of course, you know, it's so difficult for us to read this, or for me anyway, and thinking, you know, where's his attorney? Where's the DNA swab? You know, we can't, you know, there's got to be more to this, but, but we just didn't have that. They didn't have those tools in those days. And so the confession was worth, worth everything. And those other eyewitnesses that discounted, uh, you know, we'll just, we'll just dispense with that at trial. It didn't help either, right, that he acted really strange in front of people, mugging for the camera. He didn't act in a way an innocent man in a murder case should act, according to observers of the day. Right. I, and I don't even think he acts like a guilty triple murder suspect. It, it, he just defies any sort of logic. And his foster mother came forward in the middle of all this and said he craves publicity. He craves attention. And you can understand that when you look, and I write about this in the book, his childhood, and he was kind of passed off. And of course, he's mentally challenged. So I'm sure he, you know, was always just trying to be significant somehow. And here he's got the eyes of the world on him and the police, and he has no conception what's happening to him. And I write about, too, some of the comments he made during the trial and it, it, you know, it, you don't have to be an attorney. You don't have to be a police officer. You don't have to be anybody. When you read some of those comments, you realize this is a man who is facing uh, the death penalty for murdering and torturing three little girls, and he has no idea what's happening to him. None. I want to ask you about your thoughts on Dr. Joseph Paul DeRiver, staff psychiatrist for the LAPD 
For those of my listeners who might remember my interview with Pew Eatwell, it was called The Black Dahlia Revisited. She talked about him, said he had played a big role in that case, and she said that he had profiled successfully Albert Dyer as the killer. You bring this up as well in your book. Um, Can you tell us what you think about that? It wasn't completely accurate, but he said he was a young man in his 20s or 30s, and I I can't remember some of the specifics, but it it wasn't completely accurate with respect to Dyer. It seemed to be just what you would expect. It's a a younger man with, you know, pedophile tendencies or um, possibly religious. He believed that that was part of the ritual with the shoes. And But whatever the case, it became one of the first recorded criminal profiles in the United States. The LAPD was familiar with Deriver because he had been looming around trying to create this position for somebody who had psychiatric background to look at some of these perpetrators and to assist law enforcement, which, you know, was a great development. And that's, gosh, it's huge today. And so they brought him in and he... Um, he put together kind of this loose profile. The police wouldn't need it in the end because Dyer would make it so easy for them. But he became a central figure in interviewing Dyer and concluding that he was telling the truth and that he knew facts about the girls that nobody else would know. And um, he was one of many psychiatrists and uh, other physicians who examined Dyer and um, you know, he went on, he became a very controversial figure, as you know, from a variety of cases, but he went on to spearhead the first sex offender registration law in California, um, which had its genesis in my family's case. And he believed wholeheartedly, at least from what I've read in, in some of his interviews, that we could profile these types of perpetrators and we could build Uh, you know, certain features about them that would help us perhaps spot them before they struck again or struck for the first time. And, you know, that's, that's everything that we people are so entranced with today, you know, criminal profiling and and figuring out who these guys are before they do anything. And uh, he really was at the forefront of that uh, way back in 1937. I'd like to shift to the trial, if you don't mind. Who were Dyer's attorneys and what was their defense strategy? I find this to be one of the most persuasive and compelling parts of the story because as an attorney, I looked at this case and thought, okay, he's going to be assigned a couple of public defenders and they're fine attorneys. And, but they're going to take a look at the evidence and this confession and probably say, Let's just make sure we can get a plea deal out of this. Let's spare his life, and and that's all we need to do. Nobody takes this case to trial. There is no way you take this case to trial with the flimsy evidence. You have no evidence, basically, other than an alibi that he was with his wife. It it just didn't happen in those days, and it probably wouldn't happen today. Well, today we would have DNA, and that would change things. But these attorneys were incredibly capable, and... They must have seen, I can only conclude, if they decide to go to trial, and not only go to trial, but to go to trial pushing for full acquittal, arguing to the jury every day that the state 
cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this man did it because he didn't do it. They, the state has no evidence. They have this flimsy confession, uh, confessions, none of which are consistent. You have a man with a mind of a nine-year-old child. You can't put any stock in this. You know, they did a fantastic job. But the fact that they did the job at all, that they pushed to go to trial and to argue for acquittal in their closing arguments rather than just saying, please spare his life, that tells me they knew he was innocent. The other thing they did is they made it clear to the press in a, uh, and I don't want to give the whole thing away, but it was a strategic um, press conference they held during the trial. And they told the press they that they were still looking for Fred Godsey. They had investigators out there trying to find him. They were all but telling people, we know Fred Godsey did this, and you've got the wrong guy. But until we can find him, all we can do is defend our client. And that's masterful, and it's also, to me, extremely probative about what they believed and and their actions tell me everything about what they knew and what they believed. Was there any specific piece of evidence that helped seal the deal for the jury or was it all about the confession in the end? Yeah, the confession was everything, uh, but they also put on the stand, the prosecution put on the stand police investigators who you know, looked at the shoes and showed the shoes to the jury and showed the girls' dresses. And they had the medical examiner testify about what was done to their bodies. And I mean, at some point, jurors, it doesn't matter who's sitting in the defendant's chair. They need to pin this on somebody. They need to, they cannot possibly acquit this person. And Again, there's a lot more detail to it. The the other feature that I talk about in the book is that the jurors, once they were selected, their names and the picture of the entire panel was published in the LA Times with their names and their addresses. So they're under a lot of pressure to convict. If they don't and the public believes that Dyer's guilty, you know, they're they're gonna be facing the same mob that was looking for the suspect. I think that had a lot to do with it. But the testimony from the medical examiner and from some of the other police officers was very compelling. And you you just, there's no one else. When there's no other suspect than the one who's sitting in the chair and who's behaving erratically and strangely, and who also isn't going to take the stand and defend himself because no defense lawyer in their right mind would put that person on the stand, especially Albert Dyer, the jurors are left with, um, you know, just really no choice, which makes it all the more amazing to me. They were in deliberations for about two and a half days. I was shocked when I saw that. I thought they would just come back very quickly, but they clearly were debating things, but ultimately went the way of convicting. Was there ever any consideration given when determining his punishment about his limited mental capacity, or was it automatically assumed that he would be executed? Well, unlike today, today we have what are called bifurcated proceedings in death penalty cases. There's the trial, and if there's a conviction, then there's a second proceeding 
which is the penalty phase. And we look today at mitigating factors like maybe mental capacity or just character witnesses or other uh, circumstances that might lead a jury to spare someone's life. In those days, once a jury convicted, they, as part of the verdict, they either voted for life in prison or they remained silent. And it was a way, I think, it was designed so that they didn't have to feel like they were, you know, pulling the lever on the gallows at San Quentin. They would just leave it up to the judge or just leave it up to the law, but they didn't want to say one way or the other. They did not vote for life in prison. And um, one of the jurors who comes forward later to say that he believed in Dyer's innocence also said that there was a lot of discussion about life and death and that he was trying to hold out for life, but he was overruled. So, you know, we just really didn't have, there wasn't a lot of discussion of that. The the jurors make their, their conviction and because they didn't specify life in prison, he was sentenced to death. And in those days, that's how it worked. How did Dyer handle his final days on earth? What was his attitude as his execution day approached? He was alive for 13 more months on death row at San Quentin. There was only one mandatory appeal to the California Supreme Court. It took them 13 months to process that. And during that time, uh, by all accounts, Dyer unraveled pretty badly. He didn't sleep and chain smoked. He couldn't maintain correspondence with his foster mother. Uh, the guards said he was just, he was under constant suicide watch. I think it must have been settling in for him what was happening. When the death sentence was first handed down, he asked his attorney, will I get probation? You know, that's how disconnected he was from reality. So perhaps on death row is when he realized what was happening. It was, uh, it was at least according to the corrections officers who watched him during that time. It, um, you know, he had a very difficult time. So do we know what happened to Fred Godsey, uh, number one? And number two, are you pretty convinced in your own mind that he was the man responsible for the murders of your aunts? I am convinced as much as I can be without biological evidence, which is my stock and trade, of course, in working on exoneration cases. All of the pieces I learned, and again, there are a lot more that I write about in the book, just point to Godsey. He went on, at least as far as I could follow his trail, he went on to commit a lot more crimes in a lot more states, uh, never having been linked back to the Dyer case, because once police officers got Dyer, uh, they just stopped focusing on Godsey altogether, which is very common. We see that even today. And in fact, there were police officers in Utah, which uh, uh, Godsey had served time in Utah right before he went to Inglewood during the time of my aunt's murders. And so LA police officers were working closely with Utah police saying he may be headed back that way. And once LAPD got and the sheriff's office got dire, they contacted the Utah authorities and said, we're not looking for him anymore. You can stop searching. And we know that because Dyer's defense attorneys got in touch with them and they said, no, they, they called it off and we haven't been looking for him since. Um, 
So he went on to commit a lot more crimes. I couldn't find any record that he committed any more, you know, sexual assaults on young girls or molestations. And he had that in his past. Um, I couldn't find any record of that, just a, a string of things. And uh, not sure if he served a lot more time, but he died 11 years later. And the trail goes cold at that point. But there would have been no reason. You know, I kept thinking, well, gosh, if he was involved in anything similar or anything, wouldn't they have said, oh, this guy was a suspect in that sensational murder in L.A.? But it it really didn't work like that in those days. We just didn't have that kind of database and tracking that would come later, you know, out of this case. But um, he was able to just go on his merry way and. And that was not. You had some difficulty at first locating the graves of your aunts. Yeah, I I owe so much to a reporter named Larry Harnish with the LA Times. Early in my research, I connected with him and he was very familiar with the case. And he said it had always haunted him because he thought the girls were buried in unmarked graves at the Inglewood Cemetery where Jeanette Stevens was. And he couldn't do anything about it because he wasn't a family member. And so when I came on the scene and made contact with him, he said, you know, maybe you can fix this. And I said, of course, absolutely. And so I went to the Inglewood Cemetery and and I write about this, you know, and they said, no, they're not here. And I finally tracked them down and at another cemetery and they weren't in unmarked graves, um, which was, uh, a relief to find, and it warmed my heart, and I've I've visited there many, many times. But Larry was just a great contact from the very beginning and had such a heart for this story and a heart for the girls. And when I told him I'd found the graves, he, you know, was just, he, he reacted appropriately and said he was so relieved. And so, yeah, I, I did have to find them, and, and that was a labor of love. Uh, a little tangential labor of love aside from all the book research. That's amazing. So do you ever wonder what your dad might think about your book if he were alive to read it, your grandparents? I've thought it many times and interviewers ask me that question probably more than any. I think my dad was an intelligent man and my grandparents were intelligent people. And I think if they, and they would, they would consider my presentation of the case very carefully. They would take in all that we know about wrongful convictions today and and digest it. And I think they would understand why I'm questioning whether Dyer was the right man. And as I write about in the book, my grandmother never believed he was the guy from the very beginning. And she had every reason in the world to want to believe that the man police had in custody was was the guy, and and she didn't, and so I think they would be respectful and probably relieved to know that I'd looked into it and had cared enough to peel back some of these layers and look under the rocks. I also believe they would have been horrified to think that Albert Dyer was executed for something he didn't do. My grandmother said that in an interview to newspaper reporters very early on. Imagine if this isn't him. Imagine what this will do to his wife. And 
my grandmother had a heart bigger than anyone I know, and she would have had uh, just endless compassion for him and his family. Yeah. One of the things you write about, well, as you just said, your grandmother questioned whether Dyer was the murderer. One of the reasons for that was this three-mile hike that the girls would have had to have taken to get to the ravine where they were found. And your grandmother said that there was no way her daughters would have followed this man that far, that long, right? Right. And and again, I don't want to give away too much, but she had just had a conversation with the girls, my older aunt included, the night before. And, you know, she said, we just talked about this and there's just no way at some point along the three mile route, which I took years later, these girls have to figure out, you don't just continue following this guy. And it it just made perfect sense. And my grandmother was as articulate as she could be, even in the, the face of just unspeakable grief. That too was so compelling to me and 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 once you learn about Dyer and then you you know go through the entire chain of events again which I did again and again over the years this is a man with the IQ of a nine-year-old he can't even put complete sentences together and somehow he puts together a plot to lure three little girls away from their beloved park and their home and their parents on a long, hot, dusty walk. And I I mean, it's just the only reason I can laugh there is that it's just ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. And the, the more plausible story is that they were indeed, you know, in a car and driven to the scene. And that's how that unfolds. They don't have a chance to get away or change their mind. So yeah, she, she just knew that it just wasn't a possibility. What were the the personalities of your aunts like? What did you learn about them that you didn't know before that maybe makes you feel a little closer to them? Only a couple things, and I write about those in the book from the couple of people who saw them and knew them, but the basic picture I've gotten is that they were just happy little girls. They were not a care in the world. They were smart. They loved their family. I know my dad loved them. He was 13 years old at the time. Of course, when I was researching this, every time I would think about my dad, I would think about him as my dad, you know, in his late 40s. And no, he was 13 years old, but he was the oldest of the family. And uh, he was tormented by the idea that these girls were able to, you know, be abducted and, and kidnapped and um but I know he loved them. I could tell that mate when I look back and I think about that moment when he made that, that comment, I lost two sisters and I'm not going to lose my daughter. I know he loved them deeply. And um, they just they just were little girls. They were, you know, had had no idea. And lives just cut tragically short. Well said. So again, your book is called Little Shoes, The Sensational Depression-Era Murders That Became My Family's Secret available in bookstores, online. Is there a way people can contact you if they have information or a question? Yeah, the great news about the book is we're going to paperback next month. And uh, according to my publisher, that's great news for everybody because everybody loves a paperback. (laughs) They're lighter and 
a little cheaper, I guess. So that's coming in March. Um, but it's available on audiobook, Kindle, hardback, uh, everything. And I am available through the University of Nevada, Reno. I'm a professor there and, uh, my email is ready available online. And I, I hear from a lot of readers at that particular email address, which is the best place to get me. And it's so wonderful to hear from people who've read the story. They're just talking about so many of the things that you and I have this last hour or so that it's such a difficult story and yet it's so compelling. They feel as much for Helbert Dyer and, and for the time and the history and, oh, it just is gratifying every reader I hear from. So I welcome, I welcome that communication and I hope, hope readers enjoy it. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Again, I've been speaking to Pamela Everett, the author of Little Shoes, The Sensational Depression-Era Murders That Became My Family's Secret. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. <laughs>